Well, good afternoon, everyone. We have, uh, it's exciting to be in a new place, new uh, and interesting challenges to work through. <laughs> uh, keeps us all on our toes. So, um, before we get started, would you pray with me and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for giving us a place where we can come and gather and hear your word and sing your word and proclaim your word and receive your word and worship together. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to set all these other distractions to one side so that we can focus our hearts and minds on worshiping you today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this afternoon's sermon is about freedom, and more specifically, the freedom that we have in Christ. So we read in Galatians 5.13, Christ has called you to freedom. Or in Galatians 5, chapter, uh, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom is a key word here for Paul, but the word freedom conjures up so many different ideas for us. If you're in high school, maybe you're thinking about uh, the moment when you'll get your driver's license and you'll be free to hit the open road and go wherever you want, right? Get a job, make your own money, or maybe if you're my age, maybe the word freedom conjures to mind the movie Braveheart. Do you remember that? (laughs) And and, and Mel Gibson is like, freedom! Thank you, Elijah Wilkinson, for this uh, wonderful demonstration. This may come in handy later, so we'll leave that up here. Um, Or or closer to home, maybe you're thinking about uh, the word freedom conjures to my Patrick Henry's battle cry, right? Give me liberty or give me death. Everyone is trying to break free from the yoke of slavery to the British. Um, There we go. It's the afternoon. People are a little groggy, so we'll get there. Um, freedom today has come to mean something completely different, right? It means like a no holds barred, anything goes, no limitations whatsoever, where I can go and do whatever I want, be whatever I want. I, I can even redefine what gender I am, what, anything. Total radical autonomy and freedom. But the freedom Paul has in mind here is completely different. Biblical freedom means freedom to go and do whatever God has called me to go and do and be. It means freedom from the oppressive rule of sin. Freedom to live in our restored states as children of God. Sons and daughters of the king. Right? Heirs to the kingdom. Freedom means freedom to finally be who God made us to be. It means freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from loneliness and worry and anxiety and fear, freedom to live and love and worship and follow our King. More than that, though, freedom is also an objective fact. It is an objective fact. It is not subjective feelings. We tend to lead with our emotions, right? Uh, what we feel, what we sense, what we perceive. Emotions that can lead us astray, lead us to doubt, 
and to worry and to fear. But here we must cling tightly to the truth. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been set free. Past tense. It's done. That's a fact. Cling tightly to that promise. We we just read last week in in Galatians 4, right? You are now children... um, uh, children of the free woman, right? You're, you're free. Children of promise. The Holy Spirit of God himself now lives within you as a, as a seal, a sign, a guarantee, a promise, a down payment of God's work in your life. The Holy Spirit is proof that you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter of God. And so, given all of that, Paul's admonition to us all today, and the main point of the whole sermon is right here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. All right, well, all that talk about freedom is well and good, but but what does it really look like in practice? Why is it so hard for us to live out? What about all the temptations and the challenges that come our way? Well, though we're far removed from the Galatians by time, by culture, by language, Many of their same uh, questions and doubts and fears about freedom are the same as ours. And Paul's first challenge to them is stand firm through the power of the Spirit. We're going to look at three challenges Paul gives the Galatians today. And the first one is this, stand firm through the power of the Spirit. Look with me at the text here, starting in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Circumcision was the defining mark of Judaism. Right? Gentiles who were interested in God might be allowed to read and to learn from the Torah, but conversion required circumcision. It was a physical marker that indicated participation among the people of God. It was a declaration of faith in the law to provide some kind of ongoing spiritual benefit to you. Now, circumcision was not something that you would do on a whim. Right? I mean, in response to an altar call. <laughs> right? Nor is it something you could really hide from other people. I mean, you can hide it. But, but the whole point was that people would know this is like a defining marker of who you are. You are part of a different people. It was a clear and public way of putting yourself under submission to the entire Mosaic law. All of it. And Paul's point is this. If you go down that road, 
then Jesus will no longer be of any benefit to you whatsoever. His death will mean nothing. There will be no redemption. His resurrection will be pointless. The Holy Spirit will bear no fruit in your life. Do you remember some of those moments from last year, those hopeless, helpless feelings during the lockdown, when everything was closed, when it felt like everything had been taken away from you. I don't know about you, I never want to experience those feelings again. But in a way, that's life without Christ. Empty, meaningless, hopeless, trapped, imprisoned. But we've been rescued from that. And Paul says to the Galatians that accepting circumcision would be like rejecting the best gift you've ever received in your life. Accepting circumcision would be a tipping point beyond which they might never be able to return. And he's pleading with them, don't take one step further, lest you completely fall away. Now to illustrate this, I'm going to need... um, uh, a volunteer, and I, I pre-selected someone. I'm going to have Ray come up. Where's Ray? Over here. All right, come on up. All right, we're going to stand over here, actually. I told you we were going to be there, but we're going we're gonna to move over here so this camera can get us. Okay. And this rope. Here, come over. Just right here. Watch the cords and cables. Okay. This is great. All right. So, uh, I'm going to tie this rope to, to your wrist. All right? So, this is going to symbolize your life. Actually, we'll do both wrists. Yes. Because with one free, you're not really trapped at all. That's, all right. So, this is your life symbolically before Christ, right? You are tied, if I had a shorter rope here, you are tied to this piano, and it's not moving anywhere. <laughs> This is, you are in slavery to sin, trapped by the elementary force uh, uh, principles of this world. There is no hope for you. But, in this illustration, I get to be Jesus, because, you know, I'm the director, so I get to take all the best roles. So, um, uh, as Jesus, I'm going to come and I'm going to set you free from slavery to sin. So I'm going to cut this, this bond, and we will set you free. Oh, I could have used the sword. Well, we'll save that for later. <laughs> Your parents, oh, they're not, oh, grandparents are here, but parents are not here, so. All right, so here's the problem, though. Um, we are, uh, you're free, but actually, you're not really free to go and do your own thing here, because actually, uh, you're tied to me now. So you're free to move around, right? But only uh, insofar as you can go where I'm going. You're not free to do your own thing. And this is Christ set us free from sin, but not so that we could go and do our own thing, but so that we can now be slaves to Christ. Now, this is where the Galatians are at. And now the problem is they're saying that false teachers are coming in, and they're saying, no, you need to go back to the law. This is nice, but what you really need to do is this except there's only one rope. You can't be tied to me, Jesus, and the the law or whatever previous uh, system of belief had you imprisoned before. You can choose one or the other, not both. And so what Paul says 
in verse 4 is if you turn away from Christ, you're going to be severed from Christ. The only way to retie yourself to that is to cut this rope again. You'll be severed from Christ. You'll be severed from Christ. You'll be fall away from grace. There's no mixing the two. If you want to go back to this, you're cut off from Christ. And if you want to stay with Christ, there is no way for you to accept the law at the same time. Thank you. You're free to go now. question is, for Paul and for the Galatians, how do we stand firm against this temptation to go back? How do we stand firm against the temptation to add to the work that Jesus Christ has already done? Well, to do that, I want you to look at the next few verses, starting in verse 5 here. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, the, uh, the Eagle Scout, for those of you who know more about this than me, but you already know this, but the Eagle Scout rank in Boy Scouts is, I believe, the highest rank you can get. Only 4% of Boy Scouts can earn uh, Eagle Scout status. You have to accumulate 21 different merit badges in all to then uh, achieve this final status. It's super impressive. But sometimes I think we look at our faith in the same kind of way as a system of merit, something that we accumulate to our favor. Now, of course, if I gave you a test here, you would all pass with flying colors. If I said, well, how are you saved? And you'd all check the box by faith alone, not by works. Okay, great. And yet, in our day-to-day lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, at work, in the quiet of our own hearts, it's so hard not to subconsciously keep falling back into this trap of earning our salvation by works, not because the works are themselves bad, these are good things, but we begin to doubt the completeness of, of our salvation in Christ and start attributing spiritual value to these works instead. So, some might be tempted to think, well, a true follower of Jesus should piously do all the Old Testament feasts. Follow all the food laws. Uh, do all the other laws required in the Torah. That's what Paul is seeing the dangers here in Galatia. And by doing so, they would suddenly begin to think that these works are accumulating spiritual benefit. Now, others might be tempted to think, well, that's, that's rubbish. But, but true Christianity means not doing this long list of things that I've uh, added I don't watch these movies, I don't wear these kinds of clothes, I don't shop at these kinds of stores, I don't, uh, I don't listen to this kind of music, and on and on and on. And there's wisdom 
in fleeing from sin and keeping far away from things that would lead us astray. But the danger is when we subtly, over time, begin to attribute spiritual merit to the things that we do or don't do, as if they're building up to our justification. And Paul says here, scratch that entire way of thinking. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Not only can Jewish Christians not boast in their circumcision, but Gentile Christians can't boast in their uncircumcision, as if to say, look, do you see how great we are? We didn't do this thing that Paul's talking about. Mark or no mark, it's irrelevant for those of us who are in Christ's Jesus is what he says here. In Christ Jesus. Christ is sufficient for our justification. There is nothing more that can be added to the equation. That's what Paul is talking about here in verses 5 and 6. The important thing is faith or trust in Christ and his promises to us. But then you may say, well, then does everything fall back on on my feelings, on the strength of my feelings, to my personal resolve? Well, no, because biblical faith is not not a desire. It's not a wish. It's a deep trust in God. And that faith is itself a gift from God himself, according to Ephesians 2. Enabled by Christ's sacrificial work applied to my life, and fueled by the Spirit's ongoing presence with me. And Paul says the Spirit, then, is the one who will help me to stand firm and refuse to submit to the yoke of slavery. The Spirit is the one who will keep you from cutting that rope and falling away from Christ. The Spirit is the one who will strengthen you and sustain you as you trust in Jesus. But right here at the, at, at the end of, of verse 6, Paul teases one more challenge for us. He says the only thing that counts in the end is faith working through love. In other words, while on the one hand, works don't accumulate spiritual merit to our account. On the other hand, there's no such thing as faith alone. As if it sort of exists in a vacuum, like you can put it in a trophy case in your house. Like, look, there's my faith alone. Faith works. Faith leads to action. Faith draws us into the heart of God and therefore forces us out into the world he created. True faith is marked by the presence of the Spirit, and the Spirit drives us to bear fruit for God in his kingdom. So true saving faith always results in works of love. Faith is the root, and works then are the fruit that come out of that. We're going to see more about this at the end of a sermon. But for now, the point here in these first six verses is stand firm through the work of the Spirit. Now, Paul's second challenge to the Galatians is to run without hindrance. His second challenge to the Galatians is run without hindrance. 
This, uh, maybe you recognize this, this is the uh, container ship, the Ever Given, right? It's one of the largest container ships in the whole world. I can't help but I look on the back here and I think this is like a giant game of Tetris. This is where my brain goes. <laughs> it's like, uh, but about one month ago, right, it became an international celebrity in the news, the butt of all kinds of jokes. Because it got stuck in the Suez Canal, right? So here's the view from the uh, International Space Station. It's stuck sideways. This ship is the size of the Empire State Building. And it's jammed there, stuck in the middle of the Suez Canal. It was just kind of amazing to see such an enormous ship blocking this canal. And as amusing as it may have been for some on the internet, this was actually no laughing matter for the people involved, for the people whose livelihoods depend on the trade. There were 200 ships stuck in a shipping traffic jam as a result of this one blocked ship impacting businesses all over the world. And although they were able to eventually get it to move, Egypt then impounded the ship, uh, and they're asking for $900 million in damages. So funny to us, but a pretty big deal to everyone else. And Paul uses somewhat similar language here to talk about the negative impact of the false teachers in Galatia. So he says in verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, Paul envisions the young Galatian Christians running a a spiritual race, right? Pursuing Christ together. I want you to notice the language here. He says they're running well. They're not sitting well. They're not lounging well, they're not lying around well, enjoying their hashtag blessed life, waiting for heaven. They're running. They're expending effort. They're working. Not in order to earn their salvation that's been given to them, but in response to the right standing that is already theirs in Christ. It's like one of those long-distance braces you see at a track and field event. All the runners following behind Jesus, running the race, empowered by the Spirit. Many of you are familiar with uh, Eric Liddell, the famous missionary and runner from Chariots, with, uh, Chariots of Fire. And he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And whether you run or not, whether you hate running, whether you would like to avoid it if at all possible, you can nevertheless appreciate the image here, the the, the pleasure that comes when we're free to pursue Christ, to run, so to speak, the race that he has appointed for us without hindrance. When we're free from trying to earn our salvation, free from all our hang-ups and hesitations, free from the accusations of others, and can just run the course set before us. Except it's not always that easy, right? For the Galatians, Paul says, it's the false teachers who, who attempted, they stepped in, they're hindering them. Basically, they're blocking their progress. Not like a little jostle, not a little slight trip and you stumble and you keep going. Not to slow them down, but to stop them completely. Remember the image? This isn't like a, 
like, oh, I kind of stumbled and now I fell back a few spots and I can keep running. Paul is talking about a stumbling block that will stop them dead in their tracks, like that ship blocking the Suez Canal completely. No passage. Now, most of us are not facing that kind of opposition from false teachers requiring us to submit to the Jewish law. But less obvious false teachings can nevertheless work their way into the church as, as leaven or yeast, he uses that image here, works its way slowly through the dough. Sometimes these threats come from outside the church, right? These are the obvious ones. The threats from our culture, the, 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 the times when we let uh, 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 the culture determine what success in parenting or marriage is like, or we let the magazines and social media determine our value, what we find uh, to be attractive. But these are obvious because we know that we're strangers and aliens in the world, that we're different. We're not supposed to be like that. But there are equal threats from within the church, which is perhaps closer to what Paul is envisioning here. Christian brothers and sisters who appear zealous and pious, but who nevertheless add to or sometimes take away from the gospel. Influential blogs, compelling YouTube videos, popular authors. Satan Satan can work through all these different channels to try and persuade us that our faith is lacking something, that we need something more. The perfection in our faith is possible, for example. Or that gay marriage is really not that big of a deal, perhaps. Or... That if you pray hard enough, God will give you everything that you want. Or even that just whatever the latest news story happens to be today, that must therefore be the defining issue facing the church today. And we have to drop everything and change course accordingly. But read Paul's response to all such hindrances to our faith. Look at this in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So a few points to make here. First, Paul is confident that the Galatians can and will persevere. Not because he thinks they're so amazing in and of themselves, but because the Spirit will give them strength, as he's already noticed. What what the Spirit has begun in them, it will continue. But second, Paul is confident the false teachers will be judged. Look at this. He says, we'll bear the penalty. Right? Bear the penalty here. Paul isn't afraid to call out his opponents. He is more than willing to engage them head on. Look at his words in verse 12. He's so fired up that he says, look, if you're obsessed with pushing circumcision, why not just go all in and take the whole thing off? It's a fire sale, right? He's like, okay, 
Everything must go. This is Paul. Like, it's like, this is a big deal. But sarcasm to one side. Here's the point. Whether or not Paul himself is successful through his preaching and teaching to the Galatians, he has full confidence that God will not be mocked. And that all enemies of the gospel will bear the penalty. He's happy to relinquish ultimate control of this situation to God. I know how hard this is. Sometimes it's hard not to get frustrated when it seems like false teachers are being tolerated and false doctrine is taking hold in the church and proliferating rapidly. But God's kingdom will be established. If the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, then no cool hipster with a neat, compelling deconversion narrative is going to stand against it. It doesn't matter how many TikTok followers he has. No chance. God's kingdom will be established. But third, Paul is confident the cross will continue to reveal its power. Look at verse 11. It sounded like the false teachers were accusing Paul of preaching circumcision, which is perhaps true of his teaching in the past before he came to Christ. But Paul asked them, he said, look, if that's the case, then how do you make sense of the persecution I'm facing? How would any of this letter to you make sense? How would, any, how would there be any possible offense to the cross? But it's a rhetorical question because Paul expects the Galatians to know the answer. Namely, Paul says, look, I, I'm not preaching circumcision. In fact, I'm preaching against it. And the proof of that is that I'm persecuted everywhere that I go. And that's okay. Because the message that I preach, the gospel of Jesus Christ, a crucified Savior, is offensive. It causes us to come face to face with our sin, to be humbled by our pride. The cross has the power to knock us down to size. But more than that, the cross is ultimately what empowers us then for life. As Paul has already noted in his letter back in Galatians um, chapter 2. Right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, run without hindrance. Don't let anyone get in your way. Keep proclaiming the cross, and trust God to take care of everything else. Well, Paul's final challenge in this section is to serve one another through love. Look at the text here in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I know, we all know, it's a little different to gather in here like it's in the afternoon, right? We're in a new location, new seats, new technology, new everything. But as odd as all this may be, there's a huge blessing waiting for us in about half an hour. No, with the music and everything else. Not, not half an hour more of sermon. We're almost done. But there's a huge blessing waiting for us in about half an hour, right? The fellowship meal. Not because, like, this is some haute cuisine, some amazing food. I'm sure there's great crockpot food out there. But the point is, what makes it so great is the Christian community, the fellowship, the connection. The people of God gathering together to bless one another, to encourage one another, to pray for each other, to laugh and cry together, generally to do life together. It's what we've missed, right? The regular fellowship together as a body of Christ, brothers and sisters united in Jesus. And this is what all the rich theology of the last couple of months has been building up to. We've been wading through these deep waters of, of redemption and righteousness and justification by faith and our relationship to the law. And all of that is now coming together as Paul shifts gears in this letter to begin to talk about our relationship as a community of Christ, as brothers and sisters. You see, so often we limit our understanding of justification to the personal. It's, it's about me, my decision, my salvation, my faith, my hope. And on one hand, there's nothing wrong with that, right? God made each and every one of us unique and different, and all the promises of God apply to us, apply to you specifically and uniquely, individually. But there's also this thread running through the Bible from beginning to end that draws our eyes beyond ourselves to see the broader community that we've been brought into. Those who are in Christ are now considered the people of God. The great promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 applies now to us, to you and to me. We're part of that great nation, part of that great family. Which is why Paul is so clear in verse 13. Freedom is not so much about, about you specifically, it's about us together. We are all together part of the body of Christ. We are all together in Christ. Which means this freedom that we've been given can never be used as an excuse to indulge the flesh, uh, meaning our, our selfish needs, our desires, our wants. He's talking here about the temptation for letting our remaining sin nature take the reins in our lives. He says, don't do that. But sadly, of course, we do do that. Because serving myself is a thousand times easier and honestly, often a lot more satisfying than serving someone else. In fact, serving myself tends to be the default setting, it seems, most of the time. But Paul says here, 
basically be enslaved to one another. That's what he means here, where he says, serve one another, be enslaved to one another, be each other's servants. Luther summarized this passage by, by saying, the freedom of the Christian is a slavery to love. It's a slavery to love, a slavery to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means that being a good husband requires me to die to self and live for my wife, to serve her and to love her. Being a good father requires me to die to self, sacrificing you know, my TV shows or my alone time or my money in order to love and serve and care and provide for my children. Being a good friend requires me to die to self and give freely of my time and my energy and my attention and my focus to someone else. Being willing to stop and listen, to care, to notice when something's wrong or when they need my help. The freedom of the Christian is a slavery to love. And so in conclusion here, there's often a fear among Christians. The freedom, the freedom Paul is proclaiming here will be abused. Right? The grace will lead to laziness. That without adequate boundaries, we're all going to fall back into moral anarchy. And such fear leads to all kinds of extra-biblical rules and commandments designed to somehow keep our our, our sinful nature in check. Exactly what the law itself was unable to do. We somehow think that we can add extra things and somehow accomplish that. But properly understood, our freedom in Christ is not something to be feared. It's not something to be kept in check. But it's a gift from God to be enjoyed and lived out in community. Freedom in Christ is freedom to run with full strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine a a ship on, on the ocean, sails full up, wind blowing hard behind it, pushing through the waves. Freedom in Christ is what allows you to love and serve others. Freedom in Christ is what allows us to finally be ourselves as God made us to be. So for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. And through love, serve one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this freedom secured for us in Christ. And we pray that you would help us to run this race without hindrance. With your help, in Jesus' name, amen.